Welcome to the Classic Speeches Podcast, presented by BYU Speeches, bringing you treasured talks from 70 years of BYU devotionals. Be sure to check out our other podcasts by searching BYU Speeches wherever you get your podcasts, or by visiting speeches.byu.edu slash podcasts. Brothers and sisters, this is a delightful experience for me today. I don't know when I've been more terrified and frightened. I feel a little like the cowboy who rode into town and shot up the place and jumped on his horse and rode off in all directions. <laughs> I just hope with all of my heart that I might have that presence of mind and that presence of spirit that will allow me to share with you some of the feelings and the ideas that I have relative to developing a personal relationship with the Lord. I appreciated the introduction this morning. There happens to be on the stand two men who have been the most effective, powerful teachers in my life. And I wouldn't want to embarrass them by calling them by name. And so I won't mention that it's Brother Thomas and Brother Riddle. <laughs> As a young freshman at BYU, I took an English class from Brother Thomas. He touched my heart, set my spirit on fire, and I determined in my heart I was going to do everything that I could to measure up to the kinds of things that he suggested that we could measure up to. And as the years have slipped by, I had the opportunity of being continually fed by Brother Riddle and stimulated by his insight into the gospel. I'm grateful that I can have my wife here today. I appreciate her so much. Brother Thomas indicated that we anticipate the coming forth of number 10, which will make our third son. <laughs> and should he be a girl, it's because you laughed. <laughs> On the basis of past experience, I need all the faith that I can get. And also on the basis of the number of children that we have, I have concluded to offset the power of women in our household, I'd have to have another 113 sons. <laughs> it reminds me, not long ago, I was in with my wife in Carson's Market. We were getting some groceries. I was negotiating with a local banker so that we could swing the deal. <laughs> Truman. <clears throat> And Truman Madsen came up behind us, and we got to chatting. And I said, have you ever met my wife? And he said, no, I don't believe I have, but I would like to. So I introduced them, and then he said, how many children do you two have? And I said, we have nine. And the next thing I heard, and I think everyone in the store heard it, Truman said, 81 months of pregnancy. <clears throat> My wife and I had never viewed it in quite that perspective, <laughs> and consequently we collapsed. <laughs> but we are delighted with that beautiful experience. Also, brothers and sisters, in having this opportunity today, it brings back a lot of fond memories. My heart has really been touched. Over the years, as I've had the opportunity of hearing men speak at BYU devotionals, I'll never forget as a young man listening to the great prophet David O. McKay 
as he gave a stirring sermon on the bread of life, how it touched my heart, how stimulated I was by what he had to say about the Savior, and how I hoped in all of, with all of my heart that somehow the Savior might become my bread of life, that somehow I might be able to partake of his divine nature, that somehow I might take advantage of my membership in the church and ultimately put on the nature of Christ and become like him. In fact, brothers and sisters, over the years, of all of the ideas and all of the concepts that I have been exposed to, none have touched my heart, none have stirred me with such great determination to try to do the things that I felt the Lord would have me do than those ideas that had direct relationship with the living reality of the Savior. I remember on one occasion, this was at Salt Lake City, we were in Old Barrett Hall. I was going on a mission. There were about 250 of us listening to different of the brethren speak. Finally, at a particular hour, one stood and he spoke. And oh my goodness, I had a testimony at that time. I knew that Jesus was the Christ. I knew the church was true, that Joseph Smith was a prophet of God, and that this church was headed by prophets. But on that occasion, that individual without fanfare, without visual aids, without even a joke, shared with us his feelings about the Lord. And on that occasion, I vowed in my heart that someday I would know him, even as that individual did who bore such beautiful testimony. Oh, how he stirred my heart. I think of that beautiful experience of Melvin J. Ballard when, as a mission president, he was serving the church in the Northwest States Mission. He had gone over to the Fort Peck Indian Reservation to take care of some mission business. He and his counselors had fasted that they might solve some problems that had uh, come into existence on the reservation. After much fasting and prayer and making the best decisions they could, Brother Ballard then got on a train to go back to Portland, Oregon. In the dreams of the night, he found himself in what I would assume would be the Salt Lake Temple. He was in conversation with a group of men. After a period of time, an individual came over to him and asked if he would go to an adjoining room, that it had been requested of him to go to that adjoining room to meet another individual. Brother Ballard said he opened the door to this adjoining room. And as he looked into the room, he saw seated on a raised platform the most glorious personage he had ever seen. He said as he entered the room, this individual arose and smiled and softly spoke his name. Brother Ballard said this individual came right up to him and put his arms around him and embraced him and kissed him. And Brother Ballard said at that moment he felt a love so intense that he thought the very marrow of his bones would melt. He said he then fell at the feet of this individual. And there, for the first time, he saw on the feet of this individual wounds, and he knew that he was in the presence of his Christ. Throughout the rest of his life, he bore powerful witness to the effect that I would be pleased to give all that I have and all that I ever hoped to have if I could have the privilege of dwelling in the presence of Christ <clears throat> forever. And again, brothers and sisters, how that touched my heart. I was standing in a beet field on one occasion in Idaho doing some irrigating. I pulled out of my hind pocket a crumpled piece of paper and read the account 
of Lorenzo Snow having the opportunity of being visited by the Master in the Salt Lake Temple. And as I read that account, there came to me an assurance that that indeed did occur, that Lorenzo Snow did see the living Christ. He did converse with him. He obtained knowledge and power and understanding from him. And again, how my heart was touched with that particular experience. My feeling, brothers and sisters, as I have attempted to understand what the role of the Church is, my feeling is that the fundamental message of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is to declare that Jesus Christ lives, that He is indeed the Son of God, that He has appeared in our day, that men and women today can know Him, that they can know Him better than they know anyone else on the face of the earth that he can have a greater impact in their lives than the combined influence of everybody else. I believe with all of my heart that that's the fundamental message, that in the Master strength can come, that in him men and women can become all that they were potentially created to become. That is very God's. But it's through a personal relationship with him that that's accomplished. I love Joseph Smith. I'm grateful for his mission. I revere his name. Oh, I would someday that I might be sufficiently faithful, that I might be able to walk up to him and shake his hand and express appreciation for what he has done. And that appreciation would be couched in the framework. And Joseph, through you, through the restoration, through the grace of our Heavenly Father in his Christ in raising you up, you placed me in a position where I might know who the Master is. And oh, I rejoice for your mission, for your calling, for the role that you performed so marvelously as a prophet. And I feel the spirit of Joseph Smith moving to and fro in our day, in effect tapping men and women on the shoulder and saying, would you too discover who he is? Would you, too, learn how to communicate with him as I did and do? Would you feel his power? Would you become filled with his love as I have? Would you know that in all that I did, the reason I did it is that I might be a living witness that he lives? In fact, Joseph summed it up so beautifully. This is the testimony, last of all, that we give of him, that he lives. The purpose of the programs of the Church, the purpose of the ordinances and the principles, everything that is done in the Church and Kingdom of God will only find its <clears throat> created fulfillment if men and women somehow will accept the challenge that in their membership in the Church they can know who the Lord is and can have a marvelous relationship with Him. Many people have had a great influence in my life, as I indicated earlier. And I'm very grateful for everyone who has had a positive influence in my life. But I can't help but think of Joseph Fielding Smith. On one occasion, he was asked, Who, President Smith, has had the greatest influence in your life of anyone? And just very quickly, President Smith came back with, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ has had the greatest influence in my life. And oh, again, brothers and sisters, what a delight to belong to a church and a kingdom that testifies so vividly and so powerfully of the possibility of a personal relationship with the Creator of this earth, a relationship that will give us the power and the ability 
to accomplish everything that the Lord would have us accomplish. Oh, I don't know that we could ever express adequately the gratitude that ought to be in our hearts for that restored knowledge, for that available power, for that available relationship with the Lord. Brigham Young on one occasion <clears throat> said, The greatest and the most important of all requirements of our Father in heaven and of His Son, Jesus Christ, is to confess Christ. Seek to know Him. Cling to Him. Make friends with Him. Take a course to open and to keep open, a communication with our elder brother or file leader, our Savior. And then I think, brothers and sisters of the great Paul, the Apostle Paul, I guess about the mightiest missionary that the world has ever seen, a man trained in the ways of the world, having been taught by great teachers, who had a marvelous mind, but who was touched by the finger of the Lord. And as a result of that experience, he summed up his feelings about life. In speaking to the Corinthians, he said, I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And brothers and sisters, I'm sure I echo your feelings when I share with you the feeling that came to me as I read the first, with real intent, the first time the Book of Mormon. Oh, how Nephi came alive. It was as though Nephi was telling me in person, George, I want you to know that I've seen the Lord. I want you to know that I've talked with Him, that I've been carried away on high mountains, that I have been filled with His power, that it was through Him that I've been able to accomplish the things that I have been able to accomplish. And along with that witness <clears throat> that I felt so strongly coming from Him, it was as though I could also hear Him say, George, I want you to know that you too can know Him as I do. I want you to know that the reason I have written these things and testified as I have is that you might determine in your heart that ultimately your relationship with the Master will be even as mine. For that's the purpose of my intent, to testify of the God of Israel, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And then, brothers and sisters, how touched I have been by this testimony. In Ether 12, Moroni is giving us a marvelous, marvelous doctrine. He talks about the mansions that are prepared on high and the great love of the Lord. And he wants to put over to us that he knows whereof he speaks. And he attempts to do that by saying this. Speaking of Judgment Day, he says, Then shall ye know that I have seen Jesus and that he talked with me face to face, even as one man telleth another concerning these things. And then he goes on and says, And I would commend you to seek this Jesus of whom the apostles and the prophets have testified. Now, brothers and sisters, in that particular context, <clears throat> recognizing that that is the center of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and that everything points to Him, could I share with you a scripture that has been one that has triggered many insights in my life. Nephi is speaking on this occasion, 
He says, Behold, my soul delighteth in proving unto my people the truth of the coming of Christ. For for this end hath the law of Moses been given. And all things which have been given of God to man from the beginning are the typifying of him. In other words, brothers and sisters, as we take a look at the scriptures, every major experience that has occurred that God had transpire between him and us is to typify Jesus Christ. As an example, the law of Moses, or excuse me, let me refer to, first to the law of sacrifice that was given to Adam. Everything in the law of sacrifice was to point the minds of the children of God to the ultimate sacrifice of Jesus Christ, to help them appreciate and realize that somehow, and we don't understand totally how, but somehow there is no remission of sins. Somehow there is no breaking of the bands of death. Somehow there is no possible way men and women can overcome the effects of the fall and can become clean and filled with His Spirit, save it be through the shedding of blood. And the sacrificing of all of those animals from the time of Adam to Christ was to help men and women realize that in a person, in a man, in a divine being, would come the source of redemption, as he, even Christ, would shed his blood. And I think of the experience of, of Abraham, commanded to offer up his son Isaac. On many occasions, I have gathered one at a time my young sons on my lap. And as I held them, in my mind I recounted the experience of Abraham offering up his son. And in the process of doing that, I felt deeply the personal implications of Abraham having been commanded to do that. And on different occasions, there has come to me by the quiet whisperings of the Holy Ghost the overwhelming impact of what it meant for the Father to send His Son. And much of that impact has come as I have studied and reflected and prayed on that great experience of Abraham offering up his son, Isaac. I think, brothers and sisters of Moses, standing on a mountain, oh, it was an elevated piece of land, high enough that everyone could see him. Poisonous serpents had gone among the children of Israel. Many were losing their lives because of the bite of those poisonous serp serpents. Moses stood on this little elevated piece of land, somewhat akin to the ultimate piece of elevated land that the Master would hang upon the cross on. Moses stood on that elevated piece of land inside of all of those who were there, speaking for and in behalf of Jehovah. He invited everybody to look, to look to Him, to listen to His words that He was speaking under the inspiration of the Lord. And to look at the rod and the brazen serpent that was on the rod, that if they would look, they would be saved. And oh, again, the lesson that that teaches us, that only in the Master, only in looking to Him, only in being respectful of His anointed, only in recognizing that His prophets speak in His behalf, and being respectful of what they have to say and doing it, can we, through Christ, be saved? 
Oh, and I think of the manna coming down from heaven, typifying the ultimate bread of life that would come to you and I, that if somehow we could partake of it with great faith in Christ, if we could partake of that manna that could be seen in the form of the sacrament and simultaneously exercise great faith in the Son of God, oh, the power that would flow from the Master, the divine nature that would come from Him into our lives, the changes that would occur through that simple ordinance, the sacrament, if somehow we can catch the significance of the life and the mission and the sacrifice of one Jesus Christ. Now, brothers and sisters, in the 84th section of the Doctrine and Covenants is a particularly significant scripture relative to the role of the church, which I would like to share with you. I, like you, am appreciative of the good lives of men and women across the width and the breadth of the earth. I am grateful for their feelings for the Lord, grateful for their willingness to live, to abide by the light that they have. But, oh, brothers and sisters, our witness to the world relative to an understanding and a comprehension of the life and the mission of Christ, compared to the understanding that the world has is the difference in the brightness of the sun and the moon. And this is why the church was restored. That again, all due respect to the feelings that the Christian world has, oh, the comprehension, the understanding, and the power that could be theirs if they would accept the message of the restoration. And I think this is beautifully portrayed in the following verses. This greater priesthood, speaking of the Melchizedek priesthood, administereth the gospel and holdeth the key of the mysteries of the kingdom, even the key of the knowledge of God. Therefore, in the ordinances thereof, the power of godliness is manifest. The church today comes along and says that through the instrumentality of the prophet Joseph Smith and the restoration of the priesthood, that the very key to the knowledge of God is brought back to the earth, that once again men and women can know who the Lord is and can relate with Him in a total and a complete kind of way, but that they can't relate with Him save they obtain through the ordinances of the gospel of Jesus Christ the power of godliness. And so it's for this reason, brothers and sisters, that we go forth teaching the gospel, administering the ordinances, and we rejoice for the ordinances being upon the earth. We testify to the world that no man or no woman, be they ever so good, will never know fully who the Lord is, save they enter the waters of baptism at the hands of one who has divine authority, save they search the scriptures and humble themselves and seek mightily for a revealed knowledge and understanding of the Lord, that they might exercise mighty faith in Him. And brothers and sisters, every ordinance in the gospel is a channel of power to us. If, as we function in those ordinances, we develop in an ever-increasing way a personal relationship with the Lord. But those ordinances won't change our lives unless we know who He is. They can't touch us in the manner that they ought to, unless somewhere along the, along the line He really comes alive. The power of redemption isn't in the ordinances per se. The power of redemption isn't in the church per se. The ordinances in the church are a means to an end, channels by which that power can flow. But the power is in the Master, and the degree to which you and I know Him, 
and relate with him and give our lives to him is the degree to which that power will flow through the ordinances and the principles. Oh, brothers and sisters, I know that that's true. I know that we're finally saved by the blood of Jesus Christ. But we must have the ordinances. We have a divine organization, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And if we'll see that church as a means to an end and simultaneously look to the Lord with all of our hearts, then every ordinance we participate in will be a blessing, will lift us, will change us, will qualify us to become more and more like the Lord. However, some of the time, we find ourselves getting caught up in the machinery of the church. Some of the time, we get caught up in the theology of the church, in the programs. And some of the time, in getting caught up in those things, we fail to realize that unless somewhere along the line, the image of the Savior becomes emblazoned on everything we see and everything we do, then the great purpose for this divine organization and its divine principles and ordinances will be nullified. It's kind of like having a car. Let me liken the church to a car. This car is a big car, and it's a beautiful car, and it's a powerful car. In fact, it's the finest car there is. And when we become members of the church, we're very pleased to get this car. And we like to get in it and drive around, and it's just such a thrill to know that we have, a, have the kind of car that we do, that we have, in a sense, the only true car. You know what I mean? <clears throat> And, and we're so thrilled with this car, and we, we drive all around, and we go a lot of places, and a lot of beautiful things happen to us. But some of the time, because we're so excited about the car, we forget to realize that the reason the car was given to us was to make a particular journey. And the sooner we make that journey, the better. And the journey that we must make in that car, that is the church, is the journey from where we are to the Master. And if we will go to Him then we can use that car in a way that will bless everyone we come in contact with. We'll be able to use that car in a way that will open up doors and, oh, just be a magnificent, magnificent blessing to everybody. But again, what a challenge to make sure that we realize the church must be a divine launching pad to Christ, that the church is a means to an end, that it may be possible to be converted to the church without being converted to the Lord. But it's never possible to be converted to the Lord without being converted to the church. If you go all the way to the Lord, you'll see the church is the only means whereby ultimate redemption will come to the world. The only means. Now, brothers and sisters, the fundamental process by which this is accomplished, the fundamental doctrine that I'd like to refer to that I think makes the greatest difference of all is the doctrine we refer to in the scriptures as being born again. That doctrine where we stand in a position because of our faith in the Lord and the workings of the Holy Ghost, where the Holy Ghost comes upon us so powerfully that we truly become clean from our sins. We're really quickened by the heavenly element of the Holy Ghost. That experience where we're placed in a position where because our bodies are clean, the Holy Ghost can take up an abode with us and can free us from sin, and can free us from ignorance. That experience that enables us to become the sons and daughters of Jesus Christ. In fact, brothers and sisters, that's the experience where the gospel really becomes personal. Because marvelously enough, amazingly enough, through the ordinances and the principles, and particularly this experience of being born again, 
you and I can partake of the divine nature of Christ. We can receive into our very being His kindness, His patience, His intelligence, His love. We can acquire His qualities. We can have His image engraven upon our countenance. And brothers and sisters, through that process, we then stand in a position where we can solve our problems, where we can free ourselves of our personality idiosyncrasies, where we can discover who we really are. We can pick up a sense of destiny. Through that experience, brothers and sisters, there will be no question in our minds that in Christ we can find the solution to every problem that comes into our lives, that in Him we can do everything that He asks us to do. In that experience, brothers and sisters, we will see the Lord as the fountain of all righteousness. And I emphasize, brothers and sisters, all righteousness. Now, in the gospel, in a sense, there are two fundamental breakdowns, if you could put it this way. There's what we refer to as the doctrine of Christ, and then there's what we refer to as the moral and ethical principles. Now, it's in the doctrine of Christ that the power comes. And because of the power that can flow in a personal relationship with the Lord, giving our lives to Him, serving Him with all of our hearts, through that power, through the heavenly element of the Holy Ghost, we will acquire a celestial dimension of moral and ethical character. But if somewhere along the line we come into the church and we get a testimony, but we get caught up in a kind of humanistic approach to solving our personal problems, to changing our behavior, if we get caught up in the approach of, of hacking away on the moral and ethical principles, we can never, worlds without end, go above and beyond a terrestrial dimension of character in our lives. But if we accept the Lord and we're filled with His Spirit, and, and we know that He is the source of the power we need to solve all of our problems, then the natural accruement to us will be to acquire a kind of honesty, a kind of patience, a kind of love, a kind of integrity that is of a celestial nature. I hope you know what I mean by that. Some of the time I'm troubled in my heart when I see men and women who approach the gospel almost as though it is simply a moral and an ethical system. It is all of that, but it's much, much more. As President J. Reuben Clark put it powerfully in 1938 in Aspen Grove, much, much more than that. And oh, the power that can come to us if we can see that. On one occasion, <clears throat> President McKay was going over to the islands. He was a young man, as I understand it, on the Sunday school board. He got uh, an evening away from the islands, was standing on the deck of a ship. As that great man stood there and looked at the scenery around him, the clouds overhead were tinged in pink, and the islands in the distance were like velvety diamonds. And he stood on the deck of the ship and he said, Is there anything more beautiful than this? He just marveled at the beauty of God's handiwork in that part of the Lord's vineyard. And as he thought about it, he said, Yes, there is something more beautiful than this. The character of men and women who know who Christ is is more beautiful than this. The innocence that you see in children's eyes is more beautiful than this. He said that night after he retired, in the dreams of the night, he saw what he referred to as the eternal city. He said, he said he saw people dressed in long, white, flowing robes who were moving along through a gate into that heavenly city. He said off to the one side he saw the Master, even Christ. He said he was some distance away, but he could still see his features clearly. And he wondered who these people were who were moving in through the gate. 
and as though his mind were being read by the Lord. The Lord raised his hand and drew his attention to some writing on the gain. And the writing on the gain was this. These are they who have overcome all things and are truly born again. And then President McKay in 1960, speaking to members of the church, those who had gone into the waters of baptism and had hands laid on their head, but who perhaps for one reason or the other hadn't persisted in paying the price to grow and develop gradually that they might arrive at a point where they were truly born again. So speaking to the members of the church in conference, he said this, May God grant that members of the church everywhere resist temptations that weaken the body, that destroy the soul, that we may be born again, that our souls might bask in the light of the Holy Spirit and go on as true members of the church of Jesus Christ until our mission is completed on the earth. What a challenge. From my perspective, brothers and sisters, just from what I see, I think the greatest need in the church is for the members of the church to truly be born again, to be quickened by that heavenly element of the Holy Ghost, to grow in the stature of Christ, to acquire His qualities and His characteristics, as Peter put it, to partake of His divine nature. In that setting, then, could I share with you a quote of Brigham Young's where he's talking about what happens if we will try with all of our hearts to live under the influence and the power of the Holy Ghost? I remember hearing President McConkie say, this ought to be the goal of all members of the church, to so live as to have the Spirit with us at all times. And uh, in this particular experience, Brigham Young had the opportunity of visiting Joseph Smith. The reason I would like to read this is because of the simplicity of the message. Jacob 4 talks about the idea that the Jews had a tendency to look beyond the mark. And because they looked beyond the mark, they had the simplicity of the gospel taken away, taken away from them, and they stumbled. In a dream in which Brigham went to visit Joseph Smith, Joseph stepped toward me and looking very earnestly, yet pleasantly, said, Tell the people to be humble and faithful, and be sure to keep the Spirit of the Lord, and it will lead them right. Be careful and not turn away the small, still voice. It will teach them what to do and where to go. It will yield the fruits of the kingdom. Tell the brethren to keep their hearts open to conviction, so that when the Holy Ghost comes to them, their hearts will be ready to receive it. They can tell the Spirit of the Lord from all spirits. It will whisper peace and joy to their souls. It will take malice, hatred, strife, and all evil from their hearts. Their whole desire will be to do good, to bring forth righteousness and to build up the kingdom. Tell the brethren if they will follow the Spirit of the Lord, they will go right. Be sure to tell the people to keep the Spirit of the Lord, and if they will, they will find themselves just as they were organized by our Father in heaven before they came into the world. What a beautiful experience, brothers and sisters, testifying again that the fundamental process by which human nature is changed is really quite simple. It's faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, forsaking our sins, keeping the commandments, being filled with the Spirit, partaking of the divine nature of Christ, really becoming like Him. He's the greatest personality of all. And if we want to change our personalities, 
if we want to come alive, if we want to get excited about who we are, why not touch home base with the greatest personality of all? For finally, it's only He who can change human nature. Oh, it's true, we can change human behavior. But changing human behavior is a lot different than changing human nature. And only the blood of Christ can place you and I in a position to have our nature changed. Brothers and sisters, for several years I, I have read this particular verse in the 93rd section. Verily thus saith the Lord, it shall come to pass that every soul who forsaketh his sins and cometh unto me and calleth on my name and obeyeth my voice and keepeth my commandments shall see my face and know that I am. I've heard the brethren bear witness of the truthfulness of that particular statement. I pondered in my mind what it meant. I know of how careful one needs to be in, in seeking for certain experiences. But as I read that scripture, and as I look at my involvement in the church and the involvement of those that I have great respect for, I see men and women who in their minds and in their hearts are convinced that ultimately they can know the Lord fully and totally. Ultimately they can see Him. They know that He lives because they know that He lives their pleas to forsake their sins, to come to Him, to obey His voice, to do all of the things that He would have them do. But there's a lively hope in their hearts that ultimately they will see Him. Brothers and sisters, I believe in the ideal with all of my heart. I believe that there's something lifting, something tremendously soul-transforming that occurs to us when we determine in our hearts that someday we're going to know the Lord and we're going to know Him well, that someday we're going to have a total and a complete relationship with Him, that someday we'll be able to stand up and say, I have a perfect knowledge that He lives. And by the time we can stand up and say that, He has worked a mighty work. He's changed us. We're transformed into His image. Now, brothers and sisters, in conclusion, I'm convinced in my own mind that the great key by which we can obtain the power and develop the relationship with the Lord that He would have us have is prayer. <clears throat> One day, I guess everything was just right, and I was reading the following statement of Joseph Smith. He said it's the first principle of the gospel to know for a certainty the character of God and that we may converse with Him even as one man converses with another. On that occasion, there came a witness to my soul that it is possible to converse with the Lord as one man converses with another, to call upon the Father through Christ and have a marvelous, marvelous relationship. Knowing Joseph couldn't lie, I determined in my heart that I would try with all of my heart to develop that kind of communication. Could I, brothers and sisters, bear witness to you that I know that if every day with great fervor and great determination, if we will go to the Lord in mighty prayer, lifting up our voice, pleading with Him that we might be filled with His Spirit, that we might be instruments in His hands to bless and to strengthen and to build His kingdom, that if we will go to Him with the kind of intensity that would suggest that we want that more than anything in life, then gradually, beautifully, quietly, the Holy Ghost will distill upon our hearts that strength, that peace, those qualities and characteristics that will enable us to do His work. Oh, I know that that's true. I know it with all of my heart. 
I know even as I know that God lives, that Heavenly Father hears and answers prayers, the revelation is real, that the veil can become thin, that you and I can see mighty things, that he's pleased to bear his arm, even Jehovah, that we might know that he's a God of power and that in him we can accomplish all of the things that he would have us do. Oh, I know that <clears throat> with all of my heart. Joseph Smith, on one occasion, he was away from home from his wife, and he wrote this in a letter to his wife. My situation is a very unpleasant one, although I will endeavor to be content in the Lord assisting me. I visited a grove which is just back of the town almost every day where I can be secluded from the eyes of any mortal and there give vent to all the feelings of my heart in meditation and prayer. I've called to mind all the past moments of my life and am left to mourn and shed tears of sorrow for my folly in suffering the adversary of my soul to have so much power over me as he has had in times past. But God is merciful and has forgiven my sins, and I rejoice that he sendeth forth the Comforter and to as many as believe and humbleth themselves before him. Sister Whitney wrote a letter to her husband, which was very cheery. And being unwell at that time and filled with much anxiety, it would have been very consoling to me to have received a few lines from you. But as you didn't take the trouble, I will try to be content with my lot, knowing, and oh, I appreciate this, knowing that God is my friend. In him I shall find comfort. I have given my life into his hands, and I'm prepared to go at his call. I desire to be with Christ. I count not my life dear to me, only to do his will. In a sense, brothers and sisters, there's really only one principle of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and that's faith in Jesus Christ. In a sense, there's really only one law, and that's obedience to Jesus Christ. And in a sense, there's really only one endowment, and that's charity, the pure love of Christ. And brothers and sisters, I know with all of my heart that if we'll take advantage of our membership in the church and we will search the doctrine of Christ, serving the Lord with all of our hearts, carrying a heavy load of responsibility as we try to climb the mountain of spirituality, that as time goes on, the living reality of the Savior will be the greatest reality of our lives. And we will see him as the center of all things. And he will be the home of our heart. And in him we will have the ability to help Zion put on her lovely garments. As the Savior said in 3 Nephi 18, Therefore hold up your light, that it may shine to the world. Behold, I am the light which ye shall hold up. May we do that in his power. May the Lord bless you that you might grow and increase in the knowledge and stature of he after whom this church is named and through whom we can have the power to ultimately become sanctified and perfected in Christ. And I say this humbly and express appreciation for being with you today, and I say it in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. You've been listening to the Classic Speeches podcast presented by BYU Speeches. 
Please check out our other podcasts, including recent speeches, updated weekly with new talks given on BYU campus, as well as other speeches compilations on love and marriage, overcoming adversity by study and by faith. Come follow me, the prophet Joseph Smith, and Jesus Christ, our Savior and Redeemer. Go to speeches.byu.edu and click on podcasts for more information. You can also find all BYU Speeches podcasts at your preferred podcast provider.